story is told of a, um, a man who owned a very large company. It was a large corporation, and uh, he needed to call one of his employees about an urgent problem that they were having with one of their main computer systems. And he dialed the employee's home phone number and was greeted with a child who whispered over the phone, Hello? And he was feeling a little bit inconvenienced and put off by the fact he had to deal with the child and try to get this uh, emergency resolved. He said, Is your daddy home? And uh, the little boy whispered again. He said, yes. He said, well, may I talk to him? And to the surprise of the supervisor who had called, made the phone call, he said, no. He says, wanting to talk, talk with an adult, he says, well, is your mommy there? And the little boy again said, yes. He says, well, can I talk to her? And again, he said, no. Now, knowing it wasn't likely that this little boy was there by himself, he decided to, he'd leave a message with the person who would be watching this particular child. He says, is there anyone there besides you? And the boss uh, asked him, and, and he said, yes. He said, well, who's there? He said, a policeman. He said, a policeman. He goes, well, can I talk to the policeman? He said, no. He's busy right now. He said, he's busy? What's he doing? says he's talking to daddy and mommy and the fireman. Now this guy's getting a little bit concerned at that point. He says he's talking to your dad, your mom, and a fireman. And he heard something in the background. He said, what's that noise? The little boy said, it's a helicopter. He said, a helicopter? He goes, yeah, a helicopter. He said, well, what's it doing? He said, it just landed in the front yard. Well, 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 well. he said, with the search team. This guy's like, there's, there's policemen there and firemen there and a helicopter and a search team? I said, what are they doing there? He started giggling. He goes, they're looking for me. <laughs> oh, someone's in big trouble and doesn't even know it. And as I heard that story, I was immediately reminded of our ongoing study of the book of Romans. Because if you'll recall to date, the Apostle Paul has laid out a very convincing and thorough argument as to why all mankind is guilty before God. And as a result, all of us are in big trouble. But the problem is, most of us don't even know it, how bad the trouble is. Amen. Let us pray. <laughs> but the point is, is that, you know what, as, as we've gone through and we've seen the fact that God says that all of us have sinned and have gone astray, that each one of us have turned our own way and turned our back on God and gone the direction that we wanted to go. And all of us, the Bible says, according to Ephesians chapter 2, we're children of wrath. By nature, we're born in, as an enmity or an enemy of God. And because of that, we're all in deep trouble. But mo most of us, in fact, if you would talk to the average person in the street, they wouldn't realize how big a trouble that they're in. In fact, most people think they're fine. Most people think they're okay. Most people don't even begin to, even begin to understand the seriousness of the condition that all of mankind faces before God. And so what Paul has been doing through the Word of God is thoroughly and convincingly laying out an argument so that there's none of us who would not understand the severity of our problem. Each of us have sinned before God. We have all gone astray. We are born sinners by nature, children of wrath. We come into this world as enemies of God. We've turned from God. 
And because we are sinners, we sin. It's not because we sin that makes us sinners. It's because we're born in that state or that condition. I call it a congenital birth defect. Every person is born with a sin nature that is in rebellion against the things of God. And all it takes is a little bit of time before we begin to evidence that in our behavior. And we see that even in the youngest of children who begin to rebel against their parents. You tell them to do something, they say no. You tell them to do something, they say no, or they'll, they'll, they'll talk back, or, or they'll try to push you away. And you see it even in two and three and four-year-olds who smack at their mother or their father, and it's like, hey, who taught them that? Nobody. It's called sin nature, and the evidence is overwhelming. We have all turned from the original purpose of God's creation, which is to bring Him praise, to worship Him as our Creator, and also to reflect His glory in the world that we live in. We'll talk more about that in a second. But none of us do that. And so Paul lays out very convincingly in the first four chapters of the book of Romans, he shows us how we are lost, why we are lost, why we're guilty before God, why we're on death row, why the final condemnation for every sinner is a place called hell or the lake of fire, an eternity separated from God. We're all going that direction. We're all walking the green mile, so to speak. And we need a Savior. So everything that God has done up to this point is to lead us to the fact that the law that was given was to lead man to a knowledge of sin and separation from God so that, as the Bible says in Galatians, that the law is a tutor or a teacher that leads us to Jesus Christ. Why to Jesus Christ? Because he is God's Savior for all of mankind. Remember when the angel announced his birth, he said, you shall call his name Jesus. For what? He shall save his people from their sins. He is the Savior of the world. And so as we begin to understand that we know that we need to be saved from the condemnation of God, the guilt that accompanies it, and also the final result of that, which is an eternity separated from God, we know we need to be saved from that fate. And as we're walking the green mile, the intervention that comes in is that God sends a messenger into our life to tell us about God's love and that Jesus Christ died in their place. And as we're walking the green mile, we're confronted with the truth of that knowledge and we have an opportunity at that point to be saved from that fate knowing that Jesus will take care of us and walk the rest of that mile for us if we believe what God says. That's the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The great news, the good news, is that God loves people. We are all separated from God. We're lost for an eternity, except for God, who has come, as Jesus said, to seek and to save that which was lost. When were we lost? The book of Romans will go into great detail telling us we were all lost the day that Adam sinned, and through Adam's sin entered the world, and through sin came death. The reason that every one of us here will die unless Jesus comes first is that we will die because the wages of sin is death. The consequence is death. I had an opportunity a couple of weeks ago to speak at a, at a uh, memorial service for a young man who lost a battle to cancer, and the reminder and the reality to every person who was there that day is, you know, we, we accept death in older people. They live the full life, and then they die. But when a young person dies, it's like all of a sudden, you know, our whole concept of, of timing is thrown off. You know, why, why do the good die young? Well, first of all, because there is no good person. The wage of sin is death. The reason a young person dies is the same reason an old person dies, because it's a consequence of sin in the world and in our life. And so as we begin to lay that out, we begin to understand that, you know what? Hey, the reason all of us die is because none of us are any good. No, there's none of us that are righteous. No, not one. All have sinned. And the reason that, that we know that all have sinned is because all will die. And that's the evidence in and of itself that everyone needs to know 
so that we all understand, hey, you know, we all accept death, but why do we die? God says we die because we're all sinners. And physical death is a separation from the soul and the spirit from the body, just as spiritual death is a separation of the person from God himself. And so we'll talk more about that as, as we get into that particular passage. But probably, you know, one of the things that we learned as we've gone through this is that every one of us need to be saved from this final fate and that we can be saved. How? Very clearly, by recognizing, number one, that we're sinners before God, that we're guilty before God, that we're on our way to destruction, and we stop on our path and say, God, forgive me, for I am a sinner. I believe what you say, that you've pointed out very clearly that I'm not as good as I thought I was, that I am lost, that I am, as you declare me to be, a sinner before you. I fall short of your standard. The second thing we do is we respond with faith to the finished work of Jesus Christ. We believe what God says, that Jesus Christ came and took our place on the cross to all who believe, that he died in our place. We believe what God says about the person of Jesus Christ, that he is God's Savior, that he is the very Son of God in human flesh. We believe what God says, that he died for us on the cross for our sins. We believe what he says, that he rose three days later from the dead. And he lives today and intercedes on the behalf of those who believe in the very presence of God. He sits down at the right hand of the Father and he finished what he came to do, which was to seek and to save that which was lost. That is how a person is justified before God or declared righteous before God. That's God's program. That's God's way. Probably one of the most simple illustrations of that or a type of salvation in the Bible, and some of you may be familiar with the story, was that of... The disciples were out in a boat one day, and Jesus came walking to the boat on the water. You know, and we say, and we hear terms all the time like, who do you think you are? You think you can walk on water? I mean, you hear people say things like that, not even understanding that they're referring specifically to a moment in history where Jesus Christ the Lord walked upon water, showing that he had the power over nature itself because he's the creator. And so he walked across the water towards the boat, and Peter saw him and thought that looked like a cool thing to do. And Jesus said, Peter, come here. And Peter said, this is great. And so he got out of the boat. And I could just imagine the rest of them because they were always arguing about who was going to do what, when, and who was going to be the greatest. And they were probably upset because he said, okay, and he went, and the rest of them were thinking, I should do that. But they didn't. And I don't know if that's just what happened, but... Just like to have fun thinking what it would have been like to be there. But, but anyway, he gets out and he starts to walk toward the Lord. And he takes his eyes off Jesus and he starts to look around and he gets scared. And guess what happens? Anytime you take your eyes off of Jesus, you can bet what's going to happen is you're going to be in big trouble. In fact, that's why Hebrews 12:3 says, fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and the perfecter of our faith. Every believer should have our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ because he is at the finish line waiting for us and we keep our eyes on him and fix them upon him because the moment we start looking at our circumstances and the moment we start looking at people around us and the moment we start seeing things differently than what God sees us, we're all in big trouble. So he started to sink. And his simple prayer was, Save me! Then yeah, easier than that to understand. Lord, save me. What did he recognize? He recognized he was going down. He was in big trouble. He recognized that Jesus Christ had the ability to save him. And so in a simple prayer from his heart, he said, Lord, save me. And it is a type of salvation that's pictured that we're talking about in the book of Romans. 
Lord, I'm going down. You have the ability to save me. And you know what? It's time to humble myself and cry out for help. I can't do this on my own. Lord, save me. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful picture. In fact, if you've got your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 4, because what Paul did was he illustrated that God's plan, which was that Jesus would come to seek and to save that which was lost, that God's plan throughout eternity has always been the same. It has never changed. And in Romans chapter 4, look at verse 3. We saw, and he said, for what does Scripture say? What does the Bible say about how a person can be right before God? How a person can get out of the mess that they're in? The Bible says, and Abraham, what? Believed God. He believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He believed God. Specifically, the promise of God, that he would be a great nation. He believed the specific promise of God. And it was reckoned or declared to him as righteousness, put into his account once and for all of eternity, that he was now right with God, that he was a child of God, that he was, that he was a believer in God. And it was declared that that was the case in his life. He was declared righteous or justified. Now, the question is, how are the rest of us justified? By the same way, we're justified by faith. By faith in what? Faith always rests upon an object. And the object is always, what? The Word of God. We believe what God says, as I mentioned, about the person of Jesus Christ, about the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, the finished work of Christ, about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You either believe what God says or you don't. And you've got to examine yourself, as I do, as to whether I truly believe the promises of God. You either believe it or you don't. Period. There's only two types of people in the world those who believe God and his specific promises, and those who do not. That's as simple as it gets. Now we learn, and this is kind of a turning point in our study in the book of Romans, now we learn that we are all to live the same way in which we were justified, which is what? By faith. For the righteous shall live by faith. That's the thesis or the theme of the book of Romans. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for the just shall live by faith, Romans 1.17. So we are to live the same way in which we were justified. The big words are justified and sanctified. Sanctification has to do with living a way that is pleasing to God. And how do we live in a way that's pleasing to God? By faith. And so the whole program from the beginning has always been the same, that, the, uh, th that we will become just or declared just by faith, and once we are justified by faith, we will now live by faith, believing the very words and the promises of God in every area of our life. Which brings us now to Romans chapter 5. Romans 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. In this passage, what we're learning is that we now have peace with God, in verse 1, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. Now, the last time we were together, we began to take a look at, because we have peace with God, there are going to be seven benefits that accompany that whole uh, situation or this whole new relationship that we have with God, seven benefits that he wants us to understand. Some of them have to do with, our, our, with the past, some of them have to do with the present, and some of them will deal, deal with the future. And so he kind of puts the whole package together for us, and the seven benefits that we saw, the first one, as I just mentioned, was that we have peace with God. If you recall, it's extremely important, looking at verse 1 of chapter 5, to note that it is impossible to be justified by God and not know it. There is a definitive moment in history, in time, when when one recognizes guilt before God and responds with faith to the specific finished work of Christ. The point is this, and I want to drive this home as clearly as I can. You and I cannot say that we have become serious with God and not know it. We cannot make that statement. And the reason is very simple and very obvious. All you need to do is look at any serious decision that you've ever made in your life and you will know specifically the moment in time in which you got serious. When you got married. When you became engaged when you signed a contract to buy a house or to buy a car or to make other major decisions in your life. You may not know exactly, oh, we signed our escrow papers at 145 on such and such a date, but I will guarantee you, you remember being there. You may not even remember exactly the day that you, wanted, that you got engaged, but I'll guarantee you, you remember doing it. You may not remember, as some guys don't even remember the day they got married, but you'll remember being there. I mean, there are just certain things in life that are so serious that you begin to understand and comprehend and consider carefully before you enter into it whether or not that's what you want to do. I am amazed and I am frightened at the prospect of those who say that they have come into a right relationship with God and not have any idea of the circumstances surrounding that event. Peter may not have remembered exactly the day when he yelled out, Lord, save me, but I'll guarantee you he remembered every one of the circumstances that led out to him crying out before God, Jesus, save me. It is not humanly possible to become serious with God and not know when. We need to understand that because the Bible says that having been justified by faith, we now, in the present, from that moment in time, have peace with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the defining moment is something that every one of us need to really examine our hearts to see whether or not we're in the faith. The Bible says examine yourself to see if you're really in the faith. The Bible says that the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if that's not happening in your lifetime, I will challenge you to consider the fact 
that you have not gotten serious with God, nor have you ever recognized that you're guilty before God and the seriousness of your sin is, is leading you ultimately to eternal separation from God, that God loved you and sent Jesus Christ to intervene on your behalf, that you recognize that and you ask God to forgive you of your sin and you believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and invite him into your life to be the Lord of your life. The Bible says there's no way a person can do that and understand all of that and not know the significance of that moment. But I've always been a Christian. No, you haven't. You may have always gone to church. You may have always gone to Sunday school class. You may have always been involved in church. You may have always done the religious thing. But you know what? You haven't always been a Christian because you weren't born a Christian. Even if you were born in a religion and you were baptized as a baby and all that comes with the package, listen, you were born a sinner and you will die separated from God until you come to the realization of that truth and that you need Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And I, and I harp on that and I drum on that because, you know what, every example I see in Scripture, you will not see a person who didn't understand what they were believing at the moment they believed it. Thomas, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, said, I don't believe he rose from the dead. I think you're all nuts. I think you're all seeing things. And until I put my finger in his wounds and my fist in his side where they shoved the spear in his side, until I do that, I will not believe. Jesus appeared before him. And you know what? Thomas became a convert at that point. And he saw him. And he said, my Lord and my God. And he knelt down and worshipped him. There was a defining moment in his life. Abraham, defining moment in his life, our example of justification. God says, Abraham, I'll make you a great nation. And Abraham said, yeah, whatever. Ten years go by and he still didn't really believe what God had said. And how do I know he didn't believe it? Because he said, you know, God, you're going to make me a great nation, but nothing's happened. It's been ten years. Should I adopt somebody? Because it's obvious you can't do what you promised. And that's when God gave him the word picture that he needed and took him outside and said, look around you at the stars of the heaven, so shall your descendants be. And he was rebuked for challenging the promise of God. And you know what happened in his heart? It says, and then at that specific moment in history, in Abraham's life, in his own heart, he believed God. Then Abraham believed God and it was reckoned unto him as righteousness or declared justified before God once and for all of eternity. He knew in his heart that he finally believed the promise of God. And you know what? And God knew his heart too because God declared him just at that moment in time. You see, I've seen people walk up front. I've seen people say they pray to prayer. I've seen people sign cards. But you know what? It was all external and it wasn't the heart. If, the, if, if man believes in his heart, he shall be saved. Righteousness is declared in the heart of a human being who surrenders before God. People do things all the time externally, but you know what? God knows our hearts. And He knows whether we've confessed our sin. He knows whether we've forgiven, uh, that, that we've given up and we've asked for forgiveness. And at that moment in time that you've done that, He declares you just, righteous, once and for all of eternity. It's a done deal. The reason I drum that home is very simple. Because everything else that we will study in the book of Romans is specifically geared toward those who have been declared righteous or just by God. Nobody else. If you don't believe the promises of God, what I'm about to share aren't for you. 
If you've never come to a point where you've recognized that you're guilty, you've recognized you're a sinner, you've recognized uh, that, that you're on, the, on your road to hell, you haven't come to that point, and you haven't come to the point where you've responded in faith and believe what God says about the person and the work of Jesus Christ, if you haven't come to that point, nothing else that's going to be shared from this point on matters to you. Because all it'll do is confuse you. And the reason I say this is because we live in a world of people who are all confused that if they just do good stuff, that somehow that's what's going to make them right before God. And you know what? Anything that the Bible teaches that has to do with how we're to live our life is specifically related to those who have believed or put their faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ and nobody else. It doesn't apply to anybody else because it'll never save anybody else. Only Jesus alone can save us from the condemnation of God. So that's why I bring it, because I, I, I want you to understand that the benefits that come with a right relationship with God are only for those who have come into a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. So we say that we have peace with God. Therefore, assumes that the point was well established in the last chapter about Abraham. Remember, Abraham was justified or declared just before God. How? By faith. Not by works. Not by a religion not by religious practices or rites that were done at that particular time. He wasn't declared right because he was circumcised, because he was circumcised after he was declared right. He wasn't declared right by keeping the law or living a good life because he was declared righteous before God before the law was ever given, 400 years before. So there was nothing that he did in and of himself other than believe the promise of God that made him right before God. It says, having been justified refers to a moment of salvation in our history it's out of faith, and it's out of faith specifically through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no other way to get to heaven, the Bible says, but through Jesus Christ. He said it. I am the way, the only way. There's no other way. And in a world that we live where we're trying to blend every religion that you can think of and every way of living and every approach to heaven you can imagine in a way that says all of that, Christianity separates us from everybody else and that we declare the word of God is true and Jesus Christ said there is no other way to the Father but through me. All roads and religions do not lead to heaven. Only Jesus Christ does and belief in him. Any other way will lead you down the green mile and it'll lead you straight to hell. Regardless of what anybody else says, that's the truth and the specific promise of the Word of God. Again, it separates everyone again, doesn't it? You either believe what God says or you don't. You either believe the declared written Word of God or you don't. You either believe the Bible is the, the, the Word of God, the inspired Word of God, or you don't. And you hear people all the time, oh, you believe the Bible. Well, I don't believe the Bible. Fine, what do you believe? And what evidence do you have? I'll tell you what, I know why I believe the Bible is the written word of God. I know why I believe this, and it's just not on a whim or I'm hoping that it's right. But you know what, you better do some homework and check on it because I'll tell you what, you're standing on solid ground when you realize that this is indeed the very written word of God. And, and in it, we have all the authority that we need to be able to declare God's plan before man. And it's a wonderful position to be in. So we have peace with God, and the reason we have peace with God is because God's the one who declares it. In a simple way, basically what God is saying, and I'll use myself as an example, God is saying, Chuck, you know what? You're a sinner, and you're going to hell if you die in the condition that you're in. But, I've sent Jesus Christ to die in your place. If you believe what I'm saying, and you trust in him, you will find forgiveness. He took your place. Do you believe that, Chuck, or don't you? And the moment that I said, I do believe that, God reckoned it righteous 
unto me or declares me just in his sight. I happen to know the day and the specific time, and not the time, but the day and the place and the circumstance very clearly. And, and, and it was, you know, 22 years ago, and that day hasn't changed, and the circumstances haven't changed, and the message hasn't changed, and the truth hasn't changed, and my life was forever changed from that moment in time. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away, all things become new. And I mean, we're sanctified over, we can become more and more like Jesus over a period of time. But I know the definitive moment in time, just as I know the definitive moment when Linda and I got married. So as we look at this, he says that, you know what? Once that happens, then God says this, now you have come full circle to my original purpose for you being here. The original purpose in which every human being was created was what? To reflect the glory of God on this earth. Jesus said that we're to be a light, and a light that would shine in darkness. Now, as I was thinking about that this week when I was out for a run, I thought, man, you know what? My purpose, now that I've been declared just before God, is to be a light in the world. But you see, there's two types of light. There is a light, for example, like the sun that has inherent power and it's its own source of light and produces light because the light is in itself. But there's also a type of light that we have in our moon, for example, which is a reflection of the light that's produced by the sun. You see, we are not the sun, so to speak. We are not the light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world that comes into the world. I'm the light. All that you will do is reflect my glory to the world around you. You're to be a reflector of the glory of God if you've come to faith in Christ. So am I. And so we are to reflect the glory of God. That's our whole purpose in being here, our existence. We've come full circle. We now know. And because we know, we have peace. Not only the peace that God declares, Chuck, I'm at peace with you because you've come to faith in Christ but we also have peace in our own hearts. And the reason I say that is this. We no longer have to worry and struggle about what's the meaning of life. How did I get here? What is the purpose? What is, is there a God? Is there not a God? If there is a God, what, what's God's plan for, for me? Uh, where do I go after I die? I don't have to guess and worry about any of that and be troubled by it and pursue all the different things that people pursue in the world as far as what's the meaning and purpose of life. We're created in the image and likeness of God, but we are tainted by sin. And when we trust in Christ, we now go back to the original purpose of our creation, which is to reflect the glory of God in, in our lives to those around us who do not know Him. I know my purpose. I know God's plan. I'm not confused by it anymore. I'm not struggling with it anymore. I'm at peace in my own heart. Because God has declared peace with you and I, we can have peace in our own heart. You know what else? We can also have peace with other human beings because the standard at which we, are, we, have, we have received peace is the same standard that we share with those around us. Be kind, Ephesians 4.29. Be kind and tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. If you've ever seen a Christian who has been wronged in, in, in any way, shape, or form, and you see them extend forgiveness to the offender... And you go, how can you forgive that person? How can I not forgive that person? Because I was just as equally guilty before God and God extended his forgiveness to me through Jesus Christ. It's the same standard by which now I can forgive those around us. And guess what happens when we forgive one another? We have peace. We have peace in our relationships with each other. 
We ask for forgiveness at times, and we extend forgiveness at other times. It's daily in our life. It's a very present reality of being justified by Christ. We also have the peace of God. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, Don't be anxious for anything but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. What? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will what? Will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. I can't help but think about the illustration that he gave about those who had, were guarding that particular missionary as he laid out there in the mission field, unaware of what was going on around him. But the garrison, the word is garrison, or will guard your heart or surround your heart. The peace of God will surround your heart and you'll have a joy and a peace and a contentment that the world can't know. See, we have peace with God. And because we have peace with God, we can have peace with ourselves. We can have peace with others. And we can also have the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding in our moment of trials and tribulations, which we'll talk about in a second. Number two is we have access to God. We saw that in great detail the last time. We have access to God. Meaning what? You and I, because we have been declared just before God, the veil was torn from the top to the bottom, declaring that you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, through Jesus have access to God the Father in the very throne room of heaven. That we can come into his presence anytime that we want and bring anything to his attention, any need that we have, any struggle that we're having. We can approach boldly the throne of grace so that we may find grace and mercy in our time of need. Ephesians, of, I'm sorry, Hebrews 4.16. We have access to God through Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful thing. In fact, last time I, I made an illustration, or I used an illustration about going to a hospital and not having access because my name wasn't on the list. Well, my name was on the list, so I could go back to the hospital. I had access to the places where I wasn't, accept, wasn't allowed before, but the people that I was trying to see weren't there. So fortunately, one of the men that are here is a chaplain at UCI Medical Center, and I passed him in the hallway, and it just shows you as you're praying and have access to the throne room of God, God, you know what, you know, open the door for me to be able to get in to talk to these people. You know, pave the way ahead of time. And you pray as you're going, Lord, I don't know what to say, but give me the right words and, and give me a piece about what I'm about to do and, and pave the way and open the door. And so all of a sudden, here it is, where we, I walk in and I go through the hospital, I can't find these people. They went to have tests done. He went down to have a, a CAT scan or MRI, and I didn't even know. And I went to see, well, she might be out in the cafeteria. Maybe you can find his wife. And I'm walking all over the hospital trying to find somebody that I'd never met or seen before. You know, and, and, and it's like, well, Lord, show me somebody that looks like they're a little depressed. <laughs> you can see, I, I don't go to hospitals much. Um, but it was like, oh, good. Oh, this isn't helping. And anyway, so John walks out of his office just as I'm walking by. And he says, have, have you seen Julie yet? And I said, no, I don't even know who she is. He goes, well, I got to talk to him this morning. Come with me. And he had, as he called it, the keys to the kingdom. He had access. He said, you just follow me. And it was like, awesome. I was following him, and he was going to all these cool places. None of us could go. He would walk in the room, and they're doing CAT scans. There's people laying in there having CAT scans done. They have the machines going, and all these guys are looking, and they turned around to look like, and they stopped. It was like, oh, John's here. And they didn't even say, well, who's that following you? It was just like, I was just following them so close, I was a little taller than them, but, but I was like following them so close that maybe I thought maybe they'd think that we're just all one big thing. <laughs> but it was like he walked in, I walked in behind him. We walked in where they were doing CAT scans. Oh, is that him? And they're looking, I was like, no? Okay, so then we walked over here, and it was like, oh, I think they're in the MRI room. And so we're walking, all, we're going everywhere. We went to every place that I could have never gone, but I was with him, and it was through him I had access. 
So we finally find them in the MRI room, and the, and the wife comes out, and I begin to talk to her, and he leaves, and we have some time together. But I want to show you how awesome God is. She starts to cry, and, and we start to talk for a little bit. And then another player's wife comes in, and the three of us are just talking. And she said, you know, I woke up this morning, and there was no way I could handle what I had to go through today. And she said, and the first person I ran into was the, the, the chaplain of the hospital. She said, and I just lost it and broke down. And now I, I meet you, and I've never met you, and you find me, and they were in a broom closet because he couldn't stand the light, because the light was causing you know, migraine headaches and the problems they were having, that's why I was having the CAT scan. But they stuck him in a broom closet in the dark to wait until the doctor was ready to do the MRI, and she's there, and, and, and you found me in a broom closet. And then the third person that walked in was another person who they had played with on another team in another city. And it was like the only three people that she would ever know in the world that God sent in a moment in time to comfort her in what she was going through. And she just lost it. Because I said, you know what? See, we're never hidden from God. You can be in a broom closet or you can be wherever, but God always knows where we are and he always knows our needs and he can find us and he'll bring people into our life. But, but what I thought was, was not only that wonderful, but it was also a wonderful example of what it meant to have access to God. Do you realize what a privilege it is to have access to the throne room of God? That we, because we have a Savior or a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but yet has never sinned, that we can come before him with any need or problem that we have, and we will find mercy and compassion in, 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 a, in a moment of time in our life. You know what broke my heart? I don't take advantage of that access enough. We have access through Jesus Christ. Just as I had access to the MRI in the Cascan room through a hospital chaplain. You and I have same access to God himself through Jesus Christ our Lord who have put our faith and trust in him. And we don't take advantage of that. God forgive us for that. The effect and fervent prayers of a righteous man accomplish much. We have a responsibility that goes with the privilege of praying for those around us who do not have access to the throne room of God. We saw we have a glorious hope back to Romans chapter 5. We have a glorious hope, and the hope is very simple, is that we exalt in hope of the glory of God. The blessed hope of every believer is the return of Jesus Christ. Our past has been taken care of. Past, present, and future sins, we have peace with God. Jesus Christ came and took away our sins for all of eternity. Past, present, and future. The present, we have access to God. At this very moment of time, you and I have access to the throne room of God. The future contains a glorious hope. And that is this, that one day Jesus Christ will come again for his people. And if he doesn't come before he calls us home, the glorious hope of every believer is the day that we're absent from this body that we'll be present with the Lord. So we've got the past taken care of, we've got the present taken care of, we've got the future taken care of. I don't think God missed anything. Which moves us to this. We also have triumph in our troubles. Triumph in our troubles, the fourth benefit of our salvation in verses 3 and 4. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. To remind you of any other passage you can think of in Scripture, how about James chapter 1? Consider it all joy, my brethren. What? When you encounter various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you'll be a mature believer lacking in nothing. We can know this about our God. 
that the trials that we have are ordained by God specifically for our spiritual growth, to cause us to grow up. Trials in the life of the believer are to prove and to demonstrate that God can triumph over anything and everything. They do not destroy us as they destroy those who have no faith in Christ. Trials. You ever meet somebody who's just falling apart and they're just weighed under by the trials of their life and the tribulations and they don't know what to do and they're falling apart? But a believer doesn't have to because we know that whatever happens in our life has been ordained by God and allowed for His purpose, which is to grow us more into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. Now, how do we handle that? The same way we were justified is the way that we live and the way we handle our trials is what? By faith. By faith in what? The very words of God. Here's what he says. Tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Knowing this, experientially and also because God says it. How do I know it? Because God just said it. It says the tribulations bring perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope. And what? And hope doesn't disappoint. Hope doesn't disappoint. You see the process there? God allows us to go through trials and tribulations so ultimately we have proven character. And proven character brings about hope. Hope of what? Hope of the glorious return of Jesus Christ. Hope in the promises of God that we have been proven and tested and tried and know indeed, as the Apostle Paul said, at the end of his life, through all the trials that he went through, he said, I've fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. I've finished the course. Through our trials and our triumphs through Jesus Christ, we know that God's Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are indeed children of God to those who believe in His name. There is no other way definitively that you and I could know for sure that we've been declared just before God until we've gone through trials in life and we have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, guarding our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus, and the world looks at us and thinks that we're crazy, but we reflect the glory of God, which is our purpose in being created to begin with, that, you know what, through Christ I can do all things who strengthen me. Wow! Is that great? That's a present reality of our salvation. Now, don't, get, don't, don't mistake two things. The first thing that I always do when I'm going through what I call trials or tribulations in my life is to examine myself to make sure that I haven't created my own problems. You know what I'm saying? We're not hey, there's no, hey, you're not considering anything joy if you're reaping the consequences of wrong behavior before God. God says, consider it all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials. He's not saying, consider it all joy, my brother, when the Lord takes you out behind the woodshed and whoops your behind saying for that you know what how do you handle that how do you handle it when god is disciplining you for sin in your life the same way you come into a right relationship with god through faith in jesus christ is the same way you handle god's discipline in your life and that is this if god is disciplining you because of sin in your life then you go to god and you recognize your sin you recognize your guilt you ask for forgiveness and you know what you do you respond with faith to the finished work of jesus christ that he died for your sins past present and future and that's the shedding of his blood that we find forgiveness. And then what you do is you believe the word of God when it says if you confess your sin, God is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The same way that we're justified before God is the same way we live our life every day. We are justified by faith. We are sanctified by faith. For the righteous shall live by faith and faith alone. 
if you're going through a difficult time and, and, and Satan's beating you up and you're remembering things that you did years ago and you believe that God could never forgive you for what you did and as a result he has neutralized you and your effectiveness and reflecting the glory of God in your life, then you know what you need to do? You need to recognize you're guilty. You need to respond with the same faith that led you to justification. You need to respond with the faith that, hey, you know what? Jesus died for my sins, past, present, and future. He took them away. And I believe the promise of God that if I confess that sin, that God's faithful. This isn't about me, this is about him. He's faithful, he's just, he'll forgive me, he'll cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And you know what I like to do, and it's not, it's not anywhere in Scripture, but I like to respond with an attitude of gratitude, and I just like to say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for dying for my sins. Thank you that even today, when I'm faithless, you're still faithful. Even today, when I've done what was wrong before you, and even know that what I did was wrong and still did it anyway, that I just thank you that I can respond and ask you to forgive me, and you say that you will. That's what your word says, and I'll just believe what you have to say. What's interesting, tri uh, tribulum, uh, the word tribulations or tribulum uh, was a Roman word, a, a Latin word that was used for a big log that had spikes in it. And what they would do is they would take that log with spikes in it, and they would drag it across the wheat field. And the purpose of that was to separate the wheat from the tares, or to separate the chaff from the wheat. Isn't that a wonderful picture? You know what God does through trials in the life of a believer? It separates all the garbage in our life from that which God wants us to become more and more like Jesus. The fire, the dross on the top, he skims off and we're refined. Refiner's fire, my heart's one desire. But to be holy, separated for you, Lord, sanctified to be more like Jesus. That's my desire. That's my heart's desire. Take away all the garbage in my life that keeps me from being like Jesus. And the trials of life will do that when we realize we can have triumph and trouble. We also have God's love within us. Notice that back to Romans chapter 5. Hope doesn't disappoint, meaning that you will never be ashamed if you live your life believing the promises of God. How many times have you heard people say things like this to you? I can't believe you believe in the Bible. How can you believe in the Bible? You know, as if somehow they're going to say one day it's going to be proven to you how foolish you were to live your life believing what the Word of God has to say. You know what God's Word has to say about that? Hey, don't ever let anybody, don't ever let anybody cause you to think for even a moment in time that I'm not trustworthy and reliable. Your hope in me will never be disappointed. You will never be put to shame because you have believed in me. That's what he says. He says, and hope doesn't disappoint because what? The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given us. The love of God has been poured out in our hearts. It's like God saying, in the middle of your troubles, in the middle of your trials, in the middle of your distress, you know, you can almost feel the very presence of God in your life and the love of God. I mentioned to you about the funeral I did a couple weeks ago, 32-year-old man. It was appointed for man to die once, then comes judgment. That was the day God appointed for him to die. But his wife had a peace about her, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. An 18-month-old son. And you look at all this from a human perspective and you go, how can a person handle that? But she had the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, that was guarding her heart and her mind in Christ Jesus. She had the love of God that was poured out into her heart the day that she believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of her sin. And it was like she was getting a God hug 
constantly through the presence of the Spirit of God in her life. And the world around her that did not know and has not recognized their sinners, has not come to faith, responded in faith to the finished work of Christ, looked at her and looked at her and thought she was callous. And how can you not care about the fact you just lost your husband or my son or my brother or my cousin or whatever the relationship ties were? How can you be so cold and callous? She wasn't at all. She was just warmed up by the hug of God that was poured out within her, the love of God through Jesus Christ. The world will never understand that. The world won't recognize that. You've got to experience that firsthand in order to know exactly what the Word of God is saying. But for those who have responded with faith to the finished work of Christ and have gone through difficult times in your life, you know there's a big difference between how you would have handled it and how you now handle it. Because you know that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. The Word of God is truth. The Spirit of God is poured out and given to us. For while we are still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Imagine God's timing is always perfect, isn't it? Always perfect. Just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Galatians chapter 4 says, In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who would believe and trust in him. The sixth thing is that we're also to be delivered from the wrath that's to come. Isn't that a wonderful thing? And look at the context of it. And, and understand it's very clear, and I'm going to close on this, but it says, For one will hardly die for the righteous man, in verse 7, though perhaps for the good man someone would e dare even to die. But, notice, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You follow the argument? Okay, now watch it very carefully. He says, since that's true, much more than having now been justified, again, how? By Jesus' blood on the cross, shedding of his blood on the cross, we be shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. What is the wrath of God? Anytime in scripture the word wrath is used or the wrath of God, it infers two things. Number one, the ultimate judgment of all of humanity for sin for those who do not believe in Jesus Christ or accept his provision for their, their sin, the, the wrath of God will be poured upon them instead of on Jesus on the cross. It will be poured upon them. They will pay the price for all of eternity in hell. And it's specifically a moment in time in future history that the wrath of God, or we talk about the apocalypse or Armageddon and all hell breaking loose on this earth, and every time something comes up, there's a referral to it, you know, a reference to it. Oh, the year 2000, the end of the world is coming. There's always been in a human conscience, a conscience aware of the fact that one day in the future that God will judge all of humanity. Just as a day came when the flood came and God judged all of the world because of it, he says just in the days of Noah, mankind wasn't paying any attention to the signs that God's wrath was upon them. One day, all hell literally will be allowed to break loose against this earth and it's called the wrath of God which is to come. God's argument, Paul's argument as we look at this goes from the less to the greater and that's this. If while we were yet sinners before God, God still loved us enough to send Christ to die for us, how much more so is he going to love those who have trusted in Christ and protect us from the wrath to come? It is one of the strongest biblical arguments against why the church of Jesus Christ, those who have put their faith and trust in Christ, will not go through the time it's called the Great Tribulation on this earth because the argument is very clear. If he, he saved us when we were in rebellion against him, for those who believe, how much more so will he save his people who have believed and trusted in him? He will deliver us from the wrath to come. 
We will never be judged for sin. We will never be here the day the tribulation breaks out on this earth. The blessed hope of every believer is what? That we look for the day that Jesus will come to deliver us from the wrath of God which will come upon this world. It is a wonderful truth. I get so excited about it because you know what? We can't go wrong anywhere. We can't turn enough directions and try to get away from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. It's a wonderful truth. And if you look at that, it has to do with our very reality of how we live today. It's God will save us through Jesus and not because there's anything good in any one of us. It's by his grace and his mercy. For if while we were enemies, verse 10, we were reconciled, and that's the last thing, we have reconciliation with God. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death, to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, he will save us by his life. You notice that? Jesus Christ died so that we don't have to experience the wrath and the judgment of God for those who believe. Jesus Christ rose from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the Father today, and he's alive today, and it's through his life that he will make sure that all his promises come to fruition. He's alive. We talk about it on Easter, and then we forget about it the rest of the year. He is alive. He is risen. And because he is alive, he is alive to be able to deliver the promises that he has made in his word. He will see that they come to fruition. The benefits are peace with God. Only God can declare you at peace with him. You offended him, you come to him on his terms. His terms are what? Humble yourself before God. Recognize that you're a sinner. Respond with faith to the finished work of Christ. I don't understand how this all works, but I understand what you say, and either I believe that or I don't. Do you realize that a prosecuting attorney, many of them will tell you that, you know what, we can lay out convincing evidence beyond a reasonable doubt, beyond all doubt, and you know what, and we can still have people who sit on a jury say that, you know what, I refuse to believe the evidence. It's not because the evidence isn't there, and it's not because the evidence isn't clear, it's because in the heart they just say, I refuse to believe it. Do you realize that's the same thing that keeps people from coming to faith in Jesus Christ? The evidence is overwhelming. The evidence is all piled up. Take a look at it, and, and if, you, if you can refute it, then don't believe it. But if you can't refute it and say, well, I just don't want to believe it, then you're a fool. You're a fool. God help you. And he has. He sent Jesus to die for you. You either believe that or you don't. And if you do, you have peace with God. You have access now to God. You can go to him anytime, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, no matter where you are, you have access to the throne room of God. And you can ask him for mercy when you need it. You can ask him for forgiveness when you mess up in your life. And you can trust that the fact that you can respond with faith to the forgiveness that he gives you because his word promises it. It's the same way we're justified. It's the same way that we're sanctified. We have hope in the return of Jesus Christ. And if not, we have hope in the fact that we'll never experience the wrath of God. We have triumphed in our troubles. We have God's love within us giving us a God hug every time that we need it, and also so that we can give a God hug to somebody else in their time of need. We have deliverance from the wrath of God. You and I will never, ever, for those who come to faith in Christ, we will never be held accountable for sin for all of eternity, past, present, future. And the last thing is we have reconciliation with God. We're back to the original purpose of our creation, which is to reflect God's glory in the world around us. question for you is this. Are you doing that? Are you truly reflecting the glory of God and how you live your life so that those who are, quote, living in darkness will be drawn to the light so that you can share with them what we're learning from the very book of Romans that says, you know what? You, my friend, are a sinner. And you need to recognize that. 
And you need to respond in faith to the finished work of Christ. And then the last thing I'd recommend that you do is just say thank you. For Lord, I'm not worthy of your forgiveness, but I just praise you and I thank you every day. You know, Psalm 23 is one of my favorite psalms. And in it, you know, David takes us on a progression from the present to the future when he says, you know, and Lord, you prepare a table before me even this very day in the presence of my enemy. And my cup runneth over. Surely goodness, he goes on to say, surely goodness and mercy will follow me every day of my life. And ultimately I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Do you realize our salvation takes place in a moment in time in history? A moment in time on a cross where Jesus shed his blood. A moment in time where we come to faith. It continues on in the present where he continues not just to save us at that moment in time, but he continues to save us from the, and, and to forgive us from the very uh, reality of when we sin and when we fail. And in the future tense, he will protect us and save us from the very presence of sin. You realize that in heaven there will not be any sin at all present because of the holiness of our God? We've got it all. Past, present, future. I just think it's time we just say, thank you, Jesus. Amen? Amen. Next week, one service uh, meets at...